The text this morning will be Joshua chapter 2. Last week, Shane did a phenomenal job. As you might know, we are in a series for Advent uh, called The Unlikely Mothers of Jesus, and we're building from the genealogy in Matthew. And as, as Shane mentioned last week as well, genealogies are often there to prove, and the one in Matthew particularly, that the Messiah came not only from Abraham to David, but David to the Messiah's birth himself. And usually they focus in on the men. And, and what's strange about Matthew is you find these five women in that genealogy. Often when women are included in a genealogy in ancient times, it's because of something great they've done, something significant. But what is intriguing about our genealogy in Matthew are the women whom we find in the genealogy. Right, so we have Tamar, a twice-widowed Canaanite, who seduces her father-in-law. Shane preached on that last week. If you missed it, you can listen to that. It's a very, very good sermon. This morning, we'll look at Rahab, an Amorite prostitute. Next week, we'll look at Ruth, a Moabite widow. Finally, we'll look at Bathsheba, a woman who cheats on her husband, who is a Hittite, a non-Jew. So all women that are living lives that don't seem to fit a genealogy. Right? Very much a type of life that our world might dismiss. But as we study them, we're finding they're highly valuable women and highly sought after by Jesus himself for his own lineage. So we'll study this morning Rahab, the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2. It's important since we're jumping around the Bible to give some background. Tamar takes place, last week's sermon, in the time of the patriarchs. So we're in Genesis, right? We're leading up to, to Joshua, or excuse me, to Joseph and the, the, the saving of his own brothers with Judah and his other brothers. Tamar exists in that space. After the Exodus, uh, many, many years later, we come to a time of the judges uh, where Ruth will be. And in between there, we have this moment of conquest. And the conquest is where Joshua, the, the su- successor to Moses, goes into the promised land and takes out the people and, and, and takes over the land. And the very first city is Jericho. Many of you know the story of Jericho and the fall of Jericho. Well, Rahab lives in Jericho. And we find that Rahab, what she does as a profession is very seedy. She's a prostitute. And so it's very easy for us to think that's so different. Tamar, ugh, you know, and Rahab, ugh, we're so different from them. But are we really? Right, we are sinners. We are people who come from a background of sin. And God has redeemed us. And it's important as we study these stories that we don't just dismiss them or romanticize them, but that we study these stories and see where Christ is revealed and where we are revealed in these stories. Also, I want to just make one note. When we're looking at Old Testament scripture, the Bible doesn't give a lot of detail to some of the places where a movie maker might say, oh, we could really use an entire scene here or three or four scenes. The Bible will give a sentence or just a little jump over. We're leaning in and the Bible's moving to the places it wants to talk about. So we're going to just have a tiny bit of mention of her story. We're going to try to expound on that, but understand that when you read the scriptures. So let's look now together at Joshua. I'll read verses 1 to 15 and then verses 22 to 24. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. 
And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell, us this, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. Verse 22, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your your kindness, your mercy to your people is beyond belief. And as we study this passage in the life of Rahab, And ultimately, this life of your son, Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would revive us, open our eyes to see the meanings of this scripture and of redemption for your glory. Amen. Years ago, uh, I heard a story about a man who was in sales, and he was a really good salesman, but one of the problems he had was he had a hearing condition, which made him not what he thought would be a great salesman. In fact, when the hearing condition came on later in life, most would have thought this is going to ruin his sales career, but it made it better. He became a better salesman. In fact, um, it was interesting. He, he tells the story that whenever the technology came along to help his hearing improve, and he went about sales, one of his closest clients said to him, 
I really miss the way you used to listen to me when you had your hearing condition. It turns out what would happen because of his condition is he would lean in and stare at the lips of his clients as they explained their problems, their troubles with their product or service, and he would lean in and just focus in on them. And that made them feel loved and appreciated and accepted, and it shot his sales up. But when the hearing came back, that behavior began to change and his sales began to go down. And I just thought of that story as I looked at Rahab this week because with Rahab, we have a person whose actual problem and sin we're going to find out is the very basis for the way the redemption is allowed to happen. And that's really true of how God seems to work, isn't it? So often what we want is to get our handicaps, our problems, our brokenness, our stories behind us. And most of the time, God seems to say, I'm going to use that stuff. I'm going to use the reality of who you are, of what's gone on in your past, to make redemption happen. So that's really the theme, not only of this series, but this morning. God uses unlikely people to carry out his mission. We're unlikely. I mean, I hope you understand that. Like, if you think I'm a likely Christian, let's process that together. Most of us need to understand, we, when we are saved by Jesus, it's a very unlikely thing. Right? It's a, he comes to us, we're going to talk about a little bit later, in our effectual calling, he opens our eyes, we see we're big sinners, and he rescues us. And that's the sort of people he's using to carry out his mission, of which we are part of. So we're going to have um, three points primarily. There'll be a fourth at the end, just a sub-slip-in point. So the three we're going to look at, unlikely sin, unlikely faith, and unlikely savior. So beginning with point number one, unlikely sin... Um, Rahab is a prostitute. That's what all it tells us. But there's a lot more there when you start to process what's going on. Remember, Joshua is now kind of staking out Jericho, and he sends two unnamed spies. And these spies come to a city, the city of Jericho. There's other places they're going to look. And the gates are open, and apparently they've come in, and they've searched out the brothel. They must have decided, look, if we go there... No one will talk about it. That, like a brothel is discreet. You go into that place and you may have a chance. So they somehow find Rahab who lives on the wall and there they begin to explain what they're doing. And we're not told all the details. But the point is this. Rahab is a prostitute. Doesn't that just feel heavy a little bit? I think we do a couple of things with that. One of the things we do, and I think scholars have done, is they try to downplay it. No, she's an innkeeper. But the truth is, when you study the passage, she is a, bro- a prostitute. This is a brothel. The second thing we do is we romanticize it, like the Old West. You know, you always had the, the lady that ran the brothel that everyone thought was cool. She had the gun behind the bar, don't mess with her. Uh, there's this tendency to maybe romanticize it. But I want to encourage us to actually just simply sit in the fact that this person who becomes part of the lineage of Jesus had a lifestyle that was dark, broken. Later, she's going to gather her family. And notice she gathers her mother and her father. We'll talk more about it. Her brothers and her sister and their people. She has no people. We aren't told of all the reasons of why she would choose that profession. Um, it'd be tempting to say maybe in that culture it was dignified, but it was not dignified. It made her money. She had a lot of maybe like Heidi Fleiss, maybe she knew all the ins and outs of the city. She knew who was doing what, but it was not dignified. It was broken. 
And it's important to know that. Often when I'm meeting with people for counseling, uh, there's a tendency, and this has happened in my own story, where you come to that place where you look at your story and you realize maybe my parents harmed me or my grandparents. Maybe there was some harm. And you see the, the, the flash happen where the person has to sort of, you know, explain it away by saying these words, they did the best they could. There's something about those words, they did the best they could, that seeks to sort of give people a freedom for the harm they've done, right? And I've thought a lot about those words. Um, it, they sound so noble, but they're, they're betraying our theology, like, none of us, if we are Christians, would look at our sin and go, I did the best I could. Right? We say, I need the blood of Christ. So my concern is that when we do that for other people, we're revealing our own hearts. That probably the truth is, when it comes to our own sin, our own things we've done sinfully, as well as the harms that have been done to us, we equally throw them into the category of being done the best it could be done. Rather than running to the cross, which we will talk later. Does that sound harsh? That we all, even our parents, our family members may have been evil at times? In Matthew 7, Jesus is famously explaining how if you pray for the Holy Spirit, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Pray for this. He says, which of you, if you have a son asking for bread, would give him a stone? Or he asked for a fish, would give a serpent. If you then, Jesus says to people who are walking with God, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I, I think it's important as we come not only to Rahab, but ourselves, to our stories, we don't minimize the harm. We don't minimize the brokenness. She's a prostitute. In the New Testament, the Hall of Saints. This is that famous place in Hebrews 11 where the writer gives us all of the story of the Old Testament and highlights the achievements. And Rahab is in the list. And the image created is that you're going to cross the finish line by faith. And you're going to like give high fives and hugs to these saints who've gone before you. And the writer says, in the same way, by faith, Rahab... The prostitute. I mean, she's in heaven right now. This story, when this was being written, the book of Hebrews, some 2,000 years ago, you can almost imagine, do you have to say that? Like, can it just be like Rahab? Or Rahab the, and then the positives? Now, I'm not saying she actually thought that. I don't think she did at all. I think we think that for her. I think she sees as we need to see the importance of the fact that there really is a story, that we really have a, a, a lineage that we're coming out of, including our own brokenness that has been done to us, but our own sin as well. And that even though as Christians it's behind us, as Christians it's removed, that it doesn't mean the effects aren't still there and that there's not more understanding of it to be had. I'm, there's something about this passage, I think, that shows, and I've been, I don't know that I'm going to get to this heart of it this time, but something about the, her ability and maybe a person's ability to recognize and acknowledge their own sin makes them more useful for the kingdom. 
In all three of the synoptic gospels, Jesus says these words, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. There's nobody that's well. I used to read that and think, well, that stinks for me. Has anyone read that and thought that? Like, dang, I guess I'm not as useful as the sick people. You're sick. Now, if you have Christ, you have the medication of the Holy Spirit. Your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, but you still have flesh. And the medicine of Christ needs to be taken in, not for effectiveness. I'm not saying that you can't lose it, but to be living out of the health and to be walking with Jesus and to be effective in his kingdom, we need to not forget our brokenness and repentance and need to repent of those things, as well as the larger places of our story. I think often we have a theology of sanctification, of like, and I've said this before, you know, this, you know the situation where someone needs help opening the jar, they've tried it, they hand it to you, you kind of have that fear, like, can I do it, am I strong enough? And you kind of brace yourself and you turn, and boom, it pops off. And then they say, well, I started it for you. Every time. Like, it's almost like you have to say those words. A lot of us bring that to our faith. Thank you, Jesus, I started it for you. She has an unlikely sin that's exposed in our passage. But I want to talk about her unlikely faith because that's really the main part of our story. So back to the story. Um, These men are on the roof. She's gone to the king. She's told him a lie. I only point that out because it's there and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but she does. She says a, a lie. In verses four to five, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And, I, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, they went out, go after him, run. A lot of people look at this and say, see, it's ethical. You can lie at times under certain occasions. I don't want to get into the ethics of lying. But I will say that's a really bad example. I don't think we're going to point a lot of people who have sibling issues to, jo- to Joseph. You know, See, they killed our brother or almost did and sold him to slavery, and they turned out well. We don't do that. Or Tamar, for someone struggling with infertility, we would never suggest that story. So um, for those of you who listened last week, you'll get the significance of that grossness. But here we have Rahab lying. I don't understand it. I just know this. God uses broken people to achieve his ends. And by the way, who better to lie and cover for someone in a kingdom like Jericho, in a city, than a brothel owner who knows how to be discreet. So it's a mysterious thing that she and her brokenness is actually being the very impetus for the saving of these spies and paving the way for the destruction and the conquest to come. Let's talk about her faith. Because in verses 9 to 11, her faith is on display and it's amazing. Let's read together verses 9 to 11. She comes back to the men after the king and his people went off. And she says, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, she says, has given you the land and that you fear, excuse me, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. On a pause and just note that when they return to Joshua and report this story, they say... Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands because the land melts away because of us. Like she's become 
their spokesperson. They don't probably have any of this thought or knowledge. Her faith is so strong. They borrow her words. But they, she goes on. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That's been 40 years. Like, this is folklore at this point. Like, this is something that's been in this community, in her family, talked about. She's probably not even 40 herself. There's a lot of beauty in this statement of faith that shows there's also a lot of opportunity in the conquest to turn to Yahweh. But nevertheless, you come, we come back to her going on. How the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, what you did to them and whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Again, I want to say something that's a little bit, I want to be careful. I don't know that that's true. Like if you studied how everybody heard that story, I think what she's doing is she's expressing what her heart did. Maybe her own family, maybe a few other people, but it felt so real. She just assumed that this situation was so huge and God is so amazing that everyone's hearts would be melted. And listen to what she says in verse 11, continuing. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Her faith is huge, right? Her faith is so powerful. And so I think this right here is a picture of the doctrine of effectual calling. That's one of those doctrines you might learn about as you study Reformed theology you don't know what to do with. It's pivotal. The Holy Spirit goes out and opens the eyes of his people. There's no other explanation why this woman, this prostitute, would have seen these things from those stories without the Holy Spirit opening her eyes and giving her power and strength and courage. And I want you to know, if you are sitting here, here's where the doctrine touches you. If you think you chose God opening your eyes, then when you face doubt and difficulty and struggle, it's on you. But if you believe the Holy Spirit came to your heart, opened your eyes, and showed you the glories of Jesus, and you have just a tiny bit of belief in that, the faith of a mustard seed, there's tremendous hope. Because that means the Lord is at work. And her faith is huge. And I want to talk about what her faith is based on. It's based on mercy. We see in verse 12, after she's told them, about her faith, she makes a request. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me, with my Father's house. Give us a sure sign. The word there is hesed. If you heard Hunter Quinn pronounce it correctly, it's hesed. Hesed, am I doing that right? Thomas, you know who I'm talking to. He's writing down, tell Ryan to never call me out again. <laughs> Hesed love. What does it mean? It's, it's a word we don't have a, a comparative in English. Mercy, love, and loyalty all wrapped together. What she is saying is, I want to show you the kindness that I believe you've already shown me. Like I want you to see the kindness. I want to experience saving when you come in and destroy, just like I'm not turning you into the king, right? 
And God uses this word to reveal his own character. In Exodus 34, when he, uh, Brent already prayed this, but in the cleft of the rock, Moses gets to see the backside of God. Just before that, God announces who he is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed love. All of those are synonyms for the love and the steadfastness and the faithfulness of God. It's who he is. God is merciful and loving. And, and she believes that. I mean, that's the faith she has. And she now sees a moment where it's needed. She's going to place her trust in that faith in this room, in this place, this, on a wall, this brothel's quarters. She's going to pile in her family and hope and trust and believe in his love and his protection. It's also a word that applies to others. In Micah 6, 8, a very famous place, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love hesed, kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Again, to love mercy. And what you find right there and in this story with Rahab is that it's God's mercy and character experienced by us that frees us to have mercy on other people and to love them. Do you show mercy? Are you kind? Is that in your DNA? Is that in your makeup? Is that in your heart? I would ask us all, and myself included, to the percent that that's missing, like we need to begin to ask, where are we missing God's character? Because if I'm not showing kindness and love, it's because I'm not believing God's kind and love. I'm forgetting point one. Do you see what I'm saying? I've ignored point one. I've gone to the jar point. I've opened the jar. I'm the one that loosened it. That's the theology I've adopted. And so there's no need to worry about hesed and God's character because I'm in charge. But when I go back to point one and remember my sin and my brokenness, by faith, point number two, Mercy begins to flow and mercy begins to move out in our community, which leads us to the last point, almost. Point three, the unlikely savior. The story goes on. You may know the story. She lowers the men on a rope. They, they go out. She watches them run away. And then she does something that we, is inferred in our passage. We just don't get to hear. What do you think that is? I'd love, I would love at this point. We can't do it, so don't think I'm really asking but it'd be fun to just do the whole, what do you think she does? She has to go tell her parents, right? Isn't that the next step? If you've read the passage, she's going to bring her mother and her father and her siblings and their people into her brothel. She's got to go tell them. I would love to be a fly on the wall and speak that language because that would have been like, anyway. You don't want to be the fly on the wall and go, now I need an interpreter. Okay, just a moment of levity. To hear that conversation, mom, dad, like here's what's happened. It's overwhelming to even imagine it. I don't, I don't want to read too much of our culture into hers, but, but we know that she has no offspring. Um, she's chosen this profession. I'm not sure how her parents viewed her, but what an unlikely savior. What an unlikely source of salvation. It just, I was thinking about this and praying through this. 1 Corinthians 1, um, 
Paul says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise in worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful or of noble birth. Just remember, Corinth was a community that was established, and the people that flourished there were not landed gentry. They didn't come from nobility. So even though they may have been successful and had money, and then in the view of Rome, they were nothing. And yet, Rome, in Corinth is where the gospel went, and they became Christians. So, so Paul's reminding them, like, there's nothing in us that deserved righteousness and the, and the cross. You're not of these things, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose Rahab, the most unlikely person in the community of the city of Jericho, to be the one that would rescue her family. The one that would be, provide that protection. And that's the story, right? The story goes on that, that she's invited her parents. They've all come in. And later in chapter 6, we hear the words from Joshua that, that when they go in, they're going to rescue them. They're going to bring them out. Only Rahab the prostitute and all that are with her in her house will live. That's what's going to happen. And they go in and Jericho is wiped out but this family. And imagine being one of her siblings, her nephews, her nieces, her mother, her father. The way she looks in your eyes after that rescue. She is no longer a prostitute, is she? She's a glorious savior. She provided redemption. In just a few words in 1 Corinthians 1, before the words I read, we have this. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I think a lot of us look at the cross and we look at a weak savior and we do think it's folly. You say, no, 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 not me. And I hope that's true. I think as Christians, most of us don't most of the time, but there are times. And here's a great test. You're laying in bed. You can't sleep. You're extremely anxious about something. Have I just described anybody in this room ever? How close to your thoughts is the cross? When you go, well, what about the cross? Does that just cure all the thoughts? And the answer is often no, because we're not connecting the two, right? We're going through a heartache. We're going through difficulty. Where's the cross? That's for later. I've got this to focus on. That's where the cross is applied. We need the blood of the cross. We need Jesus. We need a redeemer. We need him at all moments. And I love how I know I had a, a professor who watches, who warns us. This, there's a big word that's used in, in, I guess, theological circles of typology. Don't overread everything as being about Jesus. That would be a warning to some people. And he specifically said the red scarlet cord hung out of the window. So, so the spies, as they're leaving, tell her, hang out a scarlet cord so that when we're going to come basically wipe out the city, we know which window is yours and we'll come get you. Ah, uh, that's Jesus. I don't know how, that's the Passover, is it not? Like, we're going to come in and take out everything but where the cord is put, the scarlet. Now, maybe the color doesn't matter as much because of, but nonetheless, these people are not very many generations removed from the original Passover. They know the significance. She became the unlikely Savior, and Jesus is our unlikely Savior. How do you view him? I'm, I'm going to 
go a little over on time, but there's an illustration. I just, does, does anyone like the Avet brothers? Start listening to the Avet brothers. Come on, anyone? Just one hand up. Let me know. Okay, Tucker. Thank you. That means his dad. That probably means his mom. I know that Sherry loves the Avet brothers. Okay, so those of you, Sherry likes them. Brent Niles likes them. They have a song on not their most recent album, but their last album called, um, I'm gonna, I do this, I'm going to forget all of it. What's the name of the song? That's the lyric. No hard feelings, thank you. I wrote it down anyway, but I didn't write the, the title. And, and it's told from the perspective of someone who's dying or about to die. And, it's, and the lyric goes, well, my body won't hold me anymore and it's time for me to leave. Where will I go? What will I do? You know, when it's time to take the rings off my fingers and the keys to my house, what will life look like? That's the story of the song. And it builds through the song and it's beautiful. It can be a little depressing, but it's also beautiful. And there's this place where uh, the singer is imagining entering heaven. And he says, you know, where will my body go? Will it, will it go to the ocean's blue? And they're not Christians, by the way. So I'm not promoting this as a Christian theology. Or at least they're not singing particularly Christian songs. But... They say, will I go through the ocean's blue or will I run into the Savior true and shake hands laughing? And at first I thought, well, you know, shake hands laughing. But every time I hear that song, that lyric gets more and more important. Like just that Jesus is welcoming you into his arms through his rescue. He's going to not just shake your hand laughing, but there's going to be joy and tears. Even as we're sad maybe to leave where we are leaving, we're entering our true place with him. That's our longing. That's the rescue we long for. That's the, that's the point of that song. Go listen to it. But I want to close with the fourth point, which isn't a full point. It's like, a, it's like point two of a point, but I can find it now. And that is this, an unlikely glory. Um, Rahab is amazing because she is a prostitute and she does this thing and she rescues her people. But there's a place where you find out more about her as we go along. And I just want us to note that that's what makes these women so interesting. These women, we've called them unlikely mothers and I'm not trying to get too Mother's Day-ish on you, but women and mothers are, are often the unsung heroes of our world. So the Holy Spirit, as an example, so many people, I think, mess up the theology of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's not saying, look at me. Nor is he saying, look at you. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at the Father. And that's what mothers often do. So it's not until the famous, you know, the speech of the person getting their reward that they point out their mother. But, but these mothers are important. Next week, we're going to talk about another mother, Ruth, an unlikely mother, uh, I told some of you that I was preaching on her this week. Sorry, Aaron. But that's honestly what we're preaching on next week. So read those four chapters ahead. I believe Sunday School went through Ruth recently. And Ruth is amazing because she fa- finds this man named Boaz who is a kinsman redeemer. That's what he does. And when you read the pages of Ruth, he is a, an amazing man. And he rescues her. So I hope I'm not giving too much away. And he rescues Naomi. So I love Boaz. Do you all love Boaz? Well, you all probably know what I'm about to say. But at the beginning of Matthew and the genealogy, 
Ruth doesn't just leave Jericho with her family as a prostitute, but she leads them into the people of Israel, and she marries a man named, it's spelled Salmon, but it's pronounced Salomon. 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 There we go. So she marries somebody. Now, I went and researched. I so badly wanted him to be one of the spies. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But they have a marriage, and they have a son, and his name is Boaz. And when you meet Boaz and you meet anybody like him, what do you think? Who raised that person? Who attuned to them? Who cared for them? Who cherished them? Who taught them to be a redeemer? Rahab. Do you hear that? What's missing in the passage, what we don't have, we can infer, is that she was a glorious mother. A glorious mother because of the redemption of Jesus. He shapes us. Unlikely sin, unlikely faith, unlikely Savior, unlikely glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love mercy. Oh, it's overwhelming. Teach us to receive it well. Lord, we're about to go to this table that celebrates your death. Teach us to receive it well. This table is a table of hesed, love, the lengths you've gone to. And Lord, we praise you that you don't rescue us and plop us in a desert and say, figure it out. You bring us into your people. You bring us in as the bride. We are now married to you. And Lord, you fulfill your promises and you fulfill your, your kingdom mission through us. We image your saving us by loving and saving those around us. So this Christmas season, Lord, and for the rest of our lives, I pray even at this moment, a transition, a transformation may happen that we would really be honest and say, why am I not doing those things? Am I not understanding and believing your mercy? Teach us to do so. Amen.